dismissed, and we'll hear from God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you, and we praise you. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we praise you. Holy Spirit, we love you, and we praise you. And we love you because you first loved us. Lord, you loved us when we were unlovely. You loved us when we were in rebellion. You loved us before we even had an idea uh, of your existence, really. You loved us from before the worlds began. And so we love you. And we praise you. And we want, Lord, our offering to reflect our love for you. Uh, we give not merely because you command it. We give, Lord, because our, our hearts command it, our hearts desire it, because we, we love you and want to express your worth to us, oh, Lord, in the way that we give. And, uh, Lord, we pray this morning for our children. We want them to love you. Oh, God, we want our children to love you from the youngest of ages, through their middle childhood, through teenage years, and on into adulthood, Lord. We want them to love you and not to turn from you, not to depart from the path, Lord, but but to stick to that narrow path that leads to life and to find their joy in you. God, we want it as parents. We want it as aunts and uncles. We want it as friends who uh, have children or don't have children. We just, we look at these little image bearers, Lord, and we pray, call each one of them to yourself and cause each one of them to love you deeply from the heart. And so be with the children's ministry this morning. Be with Mara and uh, Abby as they lead that ministry and all the volunteers who teach and, and corral kids and, and, and play with them and uh, enjoy, um, enjoy your presence with them. Be with each and every one of them. Uh, build them up in the most holy faith. And let us see fruit, O oh Lord, we pray, from our children's ministry and our youth ministry and everything we do to see our young people come to know you. Let it bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the ushers come forward to collect the offering, if there are any children still left in the room, they're dismissed to their program. Let me also pray for the ministry of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that indeed you would hear us this morning as we come to you asking you to speak to us. And hearing us, we pray indeed, speak to us. And when you speak, Lord, we pray, give us then ears to hear, to listen, to obey, to rejoice in what we hear. We thank you for this time and ask, O oh Lord, that by your spirit, you would speak to us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, we continue this morning in our series on our five M's. Uh, those of you who are members of the church or have been coming along for a while, you know that we do this series in the first five Sundays of the new year. It's our way of kind of uh, reorienting ourselves to our mission and what we feel like the Lord has called us to do in the world. 
Uh, you know that our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ um, from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So we exist as one local church, really in spiritual relationship to all gospel preaching local churches, as part of a movement to help people come to know Jesus and to follow what Jesus teaches. Uh, and that's what it means to make disciples. And so that's what a Christian is. A, a Christian is a disciple who makes other disciples. And so we want to play our part in that relay race. And uh, that's what our mission is about. Now, to put that mission into practice, we have five M's. And let me just pause for a second. I see our sister has some Bibles. Anyone need a Bible? If you do, just raise your hands and um, we'll get you one there. But we have five M's that sort of define that mission in terms of our objectives or strategies. We thought about the first one last week, which is to share the message, to share the message of the gospel. There is no church without this message. There is no discipleship without this message. There's no making disciples without this message. This message of Jesus Christ coming into the world, dying on the cross for our sins, being resurrected three days later, ascending into heaven and coming again to gather all those who believe in him. That message is the engine to the whole Christian enterprise. Without it, whatever that thing was, it ceases to be Christian. And so we were talking about the message, the spreading of the message. We come uh, to our second M this morning, and that is to show mercy, to show mercy. So we exist to spread the message, to show mercy. Number three, to shepherd each other to maturity, to grow in Christ-likeness. Number four, we want to seek to multiply. As I said, this is a, a, a movement, right? So we want to not just care about our own little church and our own little lives as individual Christians, but we want to see churches multiplied. We want to see leaders multiply to lead those churches. Uh, and so we want to do our part to see the gospel grow, not just our church grow. And finally, number five, we want to send missionaries. We want to send gospel preaching missionaries to the ends of the earth. Now, in previous years, we've talked about these five M's, and we've talked about um, what they mean theologically, and we've talked about them in terms of um, our strategies, how we want to pursue them, what we want to achieve in the world, things of that sort. And if you're interested to hear previous year's sermons, you can go online and, and listen to those. But it struck me this year, I, I trust this is from the Spirit, that, that this year what we should think about is our posture as it relates to these M's. Our posture, that is how we position ourselves, both spiritually or mentally, and how we position ourselves in the community with an eye toward achieving these objectives. I think that in some ways, our posture comes before our practice. And our posture affects our practice, right? Just as if you, if you and I have bad posture in the way that we, we sit or the way that we sleep, if we've got an overly soft mattress or something, that's going to affect our posture. We're going to have back pain when we wake up in the morning, and we're going to have to take that five minutes, as I do, sitting on the side of the bed, just letting your body sort of catch up with your mind, you know, and, and, and slowly get up and get straight and stretch, right? Um, we'll have to have all kinds of corrective practices for our posture before we can actually then do the other sort of things that we, we wish to do. That's true spiritually. We have to get the right posture 
in order to sort of pursue effective practice. And so we're thinking about the postures that we need as it relates to the practices, the objectives of our five M's. And so this morning we come to the notion of mercy and showing mercy. And I want to do four things. If you're taking notes this morning, this is the outline for the sermon. I want to do four things briefly uh, to help get our minds around this a little bit. Number one, I want us to see that God is merciful in character. That God is merciful in character. Number two, I want us to see that God shows his mercy in his actions that God shows his mercy in his actions. And then number three, that God's people, like him, must be merciful. That God's people, like him, must be merciful. And then I want us to ask the question, what posture, what posture helps us to be that kind of people? What posture helps us to be that kind of people. Now, if you're new to the church, normally we would take a book of the Bible and section by section just sort of preach through that book of the Bible. Um, but this morning we're doing something a little bit more topical. So we're going to be pulling out relevant verses and passages from throughout the Bible uh, to sort of see these things in the whole of the Bible. And so don't be embarrassed. If I go a little fast with some of the Bible references, you can write them down and, and look them up later. Or if you want to, uh, and I love people like this, if you want to follow me in the Bible and keep up, uh, then do that. And every once in a while, if you need me to slow down, say slow down, talk back to me, uh, and we'll slow down so that we can see these things in God's word. But the first thing we want to see is that God is merciful in character. And so you can go ahead and turn back to Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Uh, this is These are two chapters where uh, Moses is leading Israel in the Exodus, and you'll know these passages where Moses is asking things like, show me your glory. He wants to see the, the glory of God. And uh, Moses is asking things like, you know, basically, tell me your name. Now, here's the thing to notice as we look at these couple of passages in Exodus, is that often when the Bible talks about the name of God, it's not just talking about a word or name like you and I have a name. My name is Tabidi, you know, his name is Babatunde, and we don't think much more beyond that. But when the Bible talks about the name of God, it's also talking about his character, right? It's also talking about who he is, what he is like. And so we're going to see references to God's name in these couple of passages that we receive, that we, that we look at, but know that it's not just giving us a word to call God by, it's given us a character to know God by. So Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And all the saints of history who have loved God have prayed that prayer and want to see God's glory. Verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and notice and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God's name here is declared as the, as the Lord and bound up with that name. God points to two things about his character, his graciousness and his mercy and his sovereignty in his graciousness and his mercy. I will show 
grace to whom I will show grace. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But God is saying right here with Moses, this is who I am. The God most merciful. Or jump over to the next chapter, Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what God is like. And that's good news. That in character, he is just what he said he is, a God merciful and gracious. If you wonder what that means, he keeps going. Slow to anger. And how many reasons does God have to be anger, angry at the world? Slow, though, to anger and abounding, that is overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what God is like. He's merciful. Now, I should add a pinch of definition here. What is mercy? Well, you might define mercy this way. It's a real cousin to grace. Grace is God treating us better than our sins deserve. Mercy is God punishing us less than our sins deserve. Mercy is God lightening the burden. Mercy is God cutting in half the judgment. Mercy is God relieving us of the distress, the pressure, the burden, uh, all the things that would weigh us down, all the things that would crush us, all the things that would undo us. Mercy is God undoing it, lightening it, relieving us from it. And it tells us that that mercy is bound up with his name. You call upon him. You simultaneously call upon his mercy. Or consider, for example, Isaiah chapter 30. Prophet Isaiah preaching there to the people of Israel, a, a stiff-necked, disobedient, hard-head people. And this is what he says there to Israel as he calls them to repent. And, and I want us, beloved, to, to own these words for ourselves. Notice, notice what, what the prophet says. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. That's good. That's good right there. The Lord, beloved, waits to be gracious to you. He is in this posture himself of, of leaning toward us, of, of coming near to us, of seeking us out, not to crush us, not to punish us, not to, not to destroy us, but to be merciful to us, to relieve our burden, to remove those things that weigh us down, to lighten the load. He waits to do that. Because he loves to do that. And notice, notice what it says is, and therefore he exalts himself. Now, God's going to glorify himself. God's going to exalt himself. He's going to magnify himself as the one who deserves praise. But notice now, it doesn't, he's not ego tripping, even though it would be right for him to be worshiped. He's not ego tripping. He's not consumed with an idol of himself. Notice what he does. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. 
God makes himself great in order to show his kindness to his people. It's the kind of God that he is. It's the kind of God that he worships. And he's like that all the time, everywhere. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, I don't know what brought you in this morning, what, what situation you came in this morning, what's going on in your lives. I'm, I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. I don't know much of anything, honestly. But this I do know. Because the word, the word tells me so. That whatever is happening in your life, written over it, is mercy. Is God's mercy. He shows his mercy to all of creation. Now, that's not to say your suffering is not real. That's not to say the pain is not real. That's not to say it's not excruciating. It, I, I'm sure it could be. I'm sure it is. I don't mean to minimize our suffering. I mean to magnify his mercy. Because here's the truth. None of us have suffered all that we could have suffered. None of us. It could be worse, beloved. There you go, oh, Pastor, that's depressing. Only if you fail to see God's mercy. It could be worse, but God has been merciful. God has been compassionate and kind. And he will continue to be compassionate and kind because that is who he is. Beloved, if you want to make one application of this first point, it might be this. Praise God for his mercy. Just praise him for who he is. Praise him that he's God and praise him that he is merciful. Sing the song of Zechariah in Zechariah, or excuse me, in Luke chapter one, or Zechariah there, right? In the early parts of Luke's gospel breaks out in this song of praise. And if you read Luke chapter one, verses 68 to 79, you'll see several times in those few verses, Zechariah just keeps coming back to God's mercy, praising him for his mercy, praising him for his compassion and his kindness. And if we know God at all, we should know him as merciful. And if we praise God at all, we should praise him for his mercy. So this week, I, I just want to encourage you, find some time, find a place, however it is you praise God, whether it's with, you know, um, Spotify on or whether it's in journaling or whatever you do that tends to draw you near to God. Praise him for his mercy because we couldn't even praise him if he were not merciful. Praise him for it. Describe his mercy. Document it in your life. Refer back to it in your journal. Build an Ebenezer to God because of his mercy. Here's the second thing we want to see. That God is not just merciful in character, but God actually shows his mercy by his actions. So mercy is not just something that you possess. It's also something you must show, you must demonstrate. It's not just a character. It's also an action. In fact, the action is so important that someone who says they, who, who has the ability to show mercy but doesn't, we say then by definition they are what? Without mercy. They are unmerciful. 
If they have that capacity but don't do it, then not doing it brings into question the character, the capacity, right? And so we see God throughout the scripture showing his mercy. And it would take us all, take us a month of Sundays to talk about the many ways that God shows mercy. So I want us to think about just three by way of illustration. Number one, God shows his mercy during our suffering. He shows his mercy during our suffering. To see this, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Children of Israel have been in exile. They've been punished for their sin. They are returning then to uh, Israel by God's grace, uh, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. And uh, God gives this this scene here where God, uh, using Nehemiah, speaks to Israel. Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 26 to 31. I want you to to take note of the references to mercy. Nehemiah 9, 26 to 31. It says, nevertheless, they were disobedient. Talking about Israel, despite God's deliverance. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Israel did that over and over and over again. But notice verse 27, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28, this is stubborn Israel. But after they had rest, They did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times, notice, many times you delivered them according to your mercies. I wonder if anybody can testify that many times God has delivered you according to his mercy. And notice verse 29, you see the pattern here, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You see the picture we get? God keeps telling his people, come back to me, turn to me, listen to my word, obey me. That's going to give you life. And he sends prophets and sends deliverers. He sends messengers and he rescues his people. And for a minute, the people are like, oh, man, God is great. And then they turn back to their sin. And they go back to their old wicked ways. And God puts up with them. And God sends them more messengers and more deliverers and his word again. And he rescues them again. And he shows his mercy again and again and again in response to their cry about their suffering. Suffering they brought upon themselves. Even that suffering, God comes to us in mercy. He comes to us in this compassion. And in the Gospels, the prayer, it seems to me, that the Lord most often answers is, Lord, have mercy. 
I'm just going to give you verses and, and quick snippets. You can write these down and look at these. It blessed my soul to be to read these passages this week. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Two blind men are following Jesus, just crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy, have mercy. And he heals their blindness. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. The Canaanite woman. She has a daughter. The daughter is demon-possessed, and she comes to Jesus, even though she's not a Jew, and, and has this conversation with Jesus where she calls out for mercy to, to heal her daughter. And, and though she's not a Jew, Jesus heals her daughter. Matthew 17, verse 15. There's a man who has a son who's, who's also demon-possessed, and this demon throws his son into the fire. And the son has seizures repeatedly. Has so for years, and he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus, the Son of God, has mercy and heals that boy. Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, two blind men, again, sitting by the road in Jericho. Here, Jesus is coming along the way, and they start to cry out, Lord, have mercy. Being the merciful God he is, Jesus does. Mark 10, verses 40, around verse 46. You know the story of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus called on the Lord and asked for mercy. And the Lord showed it. He gave it. Luke 17, 19. You remember the story of those 10 lepers? Jesus heals and they get happy that they are healed and they go away and only one returns to say thank you. It didn't matter that nine didn't say thank you. That doesn't change the fact that Jesus was merciful and he healed them. So the first thing he does is he shows mercy to us in our suffering. And perhaps you're suffering this morning. And perhaps your suffering is tempting you to think that God doesn't care. And perhaps your suffering is so strong and so acute, you, you're even questioning God's character, whether or not he's merciful. Beloved, I, I would just have you go to the Bible again. Read these accounts of people calling upon the Lord for mercy and in faith expect that from God. Th this quality about God, that he is merciful and that he shows his mercy, makes him safe for sufferers. Makes him a good one to come to in our pain. It makes it, it makes it such that we can have great confidence that he's going to be kind to us and not crush us. He's a God who shows mercy in our suffering. But here's the second thing. As we've seen, he's a God who shows mercy toward our sin. Deuteronomy, flipping to the Old Testament again, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. Moses there is again giving the law to Israel. It's explaining who God is and what God is like. And he says these things with regard to sin and God's mercy. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3. He says, and when all these things come upon you, in chapters 28 and 29, he'd been talking about covenant blessings and covenant curses, curses. And so those are the things that he's referring to. Blessings if you obey God, judgment if you don't. And so he says now, 
When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. You see that? That God meets sin with mercy. That when we repent and we turn to him and confess our sins, what what he does is show us something we desperately need. Mercy. His mercy. This is why the writer in Proverbs, Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals, that is, whoever hides his transgressions, whoever tries to hide his sin will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's what we're to do with our sins. We are to confess them and forsake them. And here's the promise. We're going to receive mercy from God. Hiding sin from God is futile. It is ridiculous. It is, it is nonsense. He sees all and he knows all. And, and the only thing we do when we try to hide our sins, the only thing we do is we hurt ourselves. We delude ourselves and, and, and we hurt ourselves and we keep ourselves from the mercy of God, which we so desperately need. And so we can be children of the light who come into the light with our sins and confess them to God and forsake them and receive his mercy. In fact, this is at the heart of the new covenant. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of God's promise of a new relationship between humanity and himself. We read it in the call to worship, or excuse me, in the assurance of pardon. Recall from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is is quoting from the promise uh, of a new covenant found in the prophets. And in verse 12, he quotes this part where God says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God's going to do something there that we find hard to do ourselves. We find it hard to forget our sins. Our conscience bothers us. It troubles us. And sometimes when we think we have forgotten our sins and gone on away from them, and we look at our lives, what we actually find out is we're just acting out to pretend that we don't remember our sins. But God's going to do something with our sins. He's going to remove them as far as the east is from the west, and he's going to remember them no more. Not hold them against us, but show us mercy. And once again, just like the sufferer, the sinner finds it safe to come to God because God has already postured himself to be merciful toward our sin. That's good news, beloved. That's good news. Sis, clap all by yourself. If you're the only one that get it, clap. You don't want, I don't know what's wrong with the rest of them. They missed their place to shout. <laughs> 
Or maybe we're just thinking about our sin. It has a way of making us be still, doesn't it? Because we know our sin is against, is against the holy God. And we know that if he holds our sins against us, we cannot survive. We can't stand. That's why this is good news. That he is in character merciful. And he shows his mercy toward us in our sin. So as much as you think about your sin, be sure to think about God's mercy. In fact, do not think about your sin without taking your thoughts to God's mercy. His mercy is the relief we need when our conscience reminds us of our sin. A third thing, God shows mercy in our salvation. This has been implicit in everything that we've been saying, but let me just give you a couple of passages of Scripture that say it explicitly. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. There the Apostle Paul is writing about God and, and how God has saved us, and along the way, this is what he says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, notice now how he describes God, being rich in what? Mercy. We can stop right there. He's rich in mercy. He don't need no loan for mercy. He ain't coming up broke with mercy. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice now in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is mercy that moved God to rescue us. This is mercy that moved God to rescue us even while we were sinners, beloved, which means we didn't have to get ourselves right before God took an interest in us. We didn't have to clean up our act before God decided to be merciful toward us. We didn't have to learn righteousness because we were committed to sinfulness. We didn't have to get all of that stuff straight before God came to us because God is rich in mercy and already had a great love for us. And because of that, he saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. It was his mercy. That saved us. Or another passage, again, from the Apostle Paul, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Again, Paul is describing, he can hardly write a letter without having some section where he just starts praising God for salvation. And he writes here in Titus verses th uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, says, but when the goodness and loving kindness, you might have a translation that says mercy, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now, if God saves you according to his own mercy, you really saved. If God saved you according to his own mercy, ain't nothing that can get you unsaved. If God saved you according to his own mercy, you ain't got nothing to worry about in terms of an eternal future because it's all down to his mercy. It's all down to his grace. It's all down to his goodness, not our performance. And so if you say, you ought to say so. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. If you say, you ought to rejoice in the mercy of God because that is how any of us are ever going to be saved. 
Wish I had a Pentecostal church. <laughs> we need a Hammond B3 right here. So, so my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is why we have fun talking about such things. We recognize that what made us Christians was not us. It's not in us. It was never going to be in us. We was ratchet, toe up. We were sinners out there in them streets in the world. And even if we wasn't out there in them streets, we were sinners like the older brother. Jesus tells a story about two brothers, one who ran off and partied and wasted his inheritance and one who stayed home with his daddy and did everything his daddy told him. And the older brother was just as ratchet as the younger brother because he was proud and self-righteous. So even if our story isn't we was running them streets, our story could be we was proud and self-righteous and thought we was good with God because mama and daddy said we were good babies. That's enough to get us judged by God. What we want you to know, beloved, is that this Christian thing is about God's mercy. It's about God's goodness. It's about God's grace shown to sinners, shown to sufferers, shown to people who need to be saved. And you, beloved, if you're not a Christian, you need to be saved. What does that mean, Pastor T? You need to be rescued. Rescued from what? You need to be rescued from God. You need to be rescued from God's judgment that is coming against the world because of sin and unrighteousness. You need to be rescued from yourself. You need to be snatched from the flames before they get here. And you need to be brought into the kingdom of God, into the love of God right now. And the only way to do that is to pray that prayer that God always answers. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's to call upon his name and to ask him for mercy. Ask him not to treat you the way your sins deserve to be treated, but to take away your punishment, to take away your guilt, to take away your shame, to take away your place in hell and to give you a place in heaven to treat you better than your sins deserve, to give you his grace and to give you his love, even though you and I, all of us, have done everything we could do to not deserve it. He said, well, why would God do that? Have you been listening? It's because he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love toward you. And so this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, receive that love. Receive that mercy. Bow your head and call upon the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you save me from the judgment I deserve and give me the heaven and the glory and the kingdom I do not? The Lord always says, deal. That I've got you. Call upon him that you might be saved. And so, beloved, this is what God is like. He's merciful in character, he's merciful in his actions. And that brings us to our third point. 
Well, if he is our God and we are his people, it's no surprise to us then that God calls us to be merciful like him. Uh, that seems to be just logical, but let me let me show it to you in a couple places from Scripture. We won't spend long on this point, but I want to show it to you in the Bible. Uh, in, a, in a few places, we are told or commanded to be merciful just as God is merciful. So Luke chapter 6, verse 36, the Gospel of Luke, Luke's versions of the Beatitudes. Luke says this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. You, you can't get more plain than that, right? This is what God's like. That's what you be like. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And in fact, in Matthew's versions of the Beatitudes, that, that command actually brings a blessing. So Matthew puts it this way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. All right? So this life of mercy, which God com commands us to enter into, this life of mercy brings with it the promise of blessing. It brings with it the promise of more mercy. And, and the Bible goes on further. It, it teaches us that this mercy is at the heart of what it means to be a neighbor. So in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37, Jesus is telling the story uh, of, of the, the Good Samaritan. And he asked this question in verse 36. You remember that the Good Samaritan is being contrasted with a couple of groups of religious persons. They're traveling down this road. They see this man beaten and left for dead and robbed on the road. And, and they do what we do. They cross to the other side of the street. They kept going, right? Because we all know there might be some more robbers over there, right? But the Samaritan comes along, sees the man, uh, takes care of the man, puts the man on his donkey or his horse, takes him to a, a hotel, pays the hotel bill, tells the people at the hotel, I got to make a trip, but I'm coming back. When I come back, if he owes you anything more, I'm going to pay you that too. And then Jesus asked him the question, verse 36, which, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, his audience answers, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. So at the heart of neighborliness and at the heart of discipleship, according to this story and this, this punchline, is that we hear people who are merciful. And it's this quality of being merciful that keeps us from being hypocrites. Did you know that? Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. It's a whole section there uh, in the sermon where Jesus is calling out hypocrites of various sorts. And in verse 23, he uh, calls out, again, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. When you say, woe to you in the Bible, that's a prophet's way of saying God judge you. So woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why this time? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness or love. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So we're going to bring it up to speed in our day and put it in the context of the church. You might say, woe to the Christian church that tithes his income, gives 10% of his income, but then fails to do justice and fails to do mercy and fails to love its neighbor. Hypocrites, you should have tithed your income and you should have done justice and mercy and love, right? It's that quality of mercy and justice seeking 
and loving others that keeps us from being guilty of the charge of hypocrisy. And so God calls his people to be like him. And that brings us to our final question then. Well, well, what posture helps us to do that? If we see that so plainly in the Bible, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. And we see how important it is. What, what, what helps us to live into that? What posture helps us to practice this? And again, we could talk about many kinds of answers to that question, but here's what I, I want to give us this morning. It's a, it's a posture of incarnation. It's a posture of incarnation. It's a fancy word, carne meaning flesh, incarnate in the flesh. It's a word that we get theologically from thinking about our Lord Jesus himself, who was eternally God, but in time and history took upon himself human flesh. He was incarnated and came into the world to save us from our sins. That same posture is going to be necessary for us to follow him and to be merciful as he is merciful. So let me give you a, a, a on-the-street definition of, of incarnation, a sort of lay-level, simple uh, definition of what I mean when I use this term. It's to be in our bodies, in the present, in the flesh with others. It's to be in our bodies, in the present, in the flesh with others. That sounds obvious. Where else are we going to be, Pastor T, but in our bodies? But I want to suggest to you that we live in an age of massive distraction. And our bodies are often in one place, but our minds and our hearts, our souls are, are, are a thousand miles away or pixelated into some screen and transferred into some social media where ain't nobody really at. Right? So we often are living very disembodied lives. And worse, I think we are a part of a religious tradition, American Christianity, that, that has practiced this un, unawares, perhaps, to the detriment of the faith. The, 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 the great challenge to the church today is a kind of docetic pietism. So what's that? The, the, the docetists, this is an early heresy, believe that basically everything physical is evil and everything spiritual is good. And because of that, they went so far as to deny that Jesus actually had a physical body, right? Because matter is evil and only spirit is good. And because of that, they, they began to really neglect the physical either to neglect it with a kind of asceticism, treating the body harshly, or going the other way toward a kind of license. Since what we do in the body doesn't matter, we might as well give ourselves to all kinds of sin. And, and yet, you know, spiritually, we good. But those, were, those were the docetics and, and how they thought about things. Well, pietism starts in Germany. And it starts for a good reason. It, it, many Christians in Germany were concerned about the cold, formal orthodoxy of the church in Germany. And, and they said, what we need is a, is a living, breathing piety. We need a religion of the heart. We need revival in the soul. And that was its, that was its great aim, to see that kind of revival. And so they placed this great emphasis on the interior spiritual lives. 
But but you can imagine what happens in the course of history when those two strands just kind of get wrapped around each other. A kind of thinking that's skeptical about the physical world and a kind of religious orientation that's almost entirely inward, that's entirely focused on the individual heart. Well, what does that do to public witness? Well, it kind of cuts it off, doesn't it? It, it kind of creates a situation where we begin to think that um, the Christian life is best defined solely in terms of some kind of spiritual emphasis and spiritual matters. And we just go inward and inward in spiritual navel gazing until we forget that we live in an actual embodied world, a physical world that needs a physical witness. That, I think, is part of the challenge. Come along and add to that, as I said a moment ago, the massive distractions that define our age, social media, entertainment, things of that sort. Add to that things we almost never think about, which have profoundly affected human life, like the automobile. Like what? The automobile has caused us to live in a very different pattern of life than we would have just 60 or 70 years ago. 60 or 70 years ago, and, and you can see the, the marks of it in our community. 60 or 70 years ago, you would have lived in a community, and in that community would have been almost everything you needed within walking distance. That's why there are corner stores still everywhere around here, right? Because the corner store, the corner market, used to be where you got your groceries. There was no A&P or Harris Teeter or whatever that you drove to. Rather, you walked to it. It was a more incarnate life, lived at about the speed of two miles an hour. Now, if we want to go to the store, there's a whole district designed as a commercial district that you got to get in your car and drive to across several neighborhoods, past houses and people you never actually look at anymore. And so it's changed our lives and made us less local and more disembodied. About a year ago, I just started walking to lunch. And it wasn't some sort of stroke of genius and strategy. Just thought, stop being lazy. Lunch is like six blocks that way. Stop driving over there. And I started walking to lunch. And I, I noticed along the way, after about four or five walks, I noticed that I was noticing stuff. Oh, I didn't know that house was, oh, wow, they live over here? And then I noticed that people were noticing me. And in the accumulation of notices, I began to be defined as somebody who's in the community. And I began to be able to tell the difference between people who lived here and people who just seemed to be kind of coming in and out. It's not hard to tell when you walk, right? To see changes in the neighborhood and places where things aren't changing. That little habit of walking is a great practice for incarnation, for living in your body, being present somewhere with other people. See Christian walking his dog. We can walk and talk about Tommy doing the repairs on his house. He said, all good things, Tommy. You know, bump into others, out getting coffee at Capital One Cafe or whatever. See my wife there working in the window and I'd blow her a kiss and people would wonder, who this man just blowing kisses at random women? You know, that's my wife, that's my boo. It's incarnation. 
that makes sense of the Bible's teaching, not just about the heart, but about our witness in the world. Two, two verses, a couple of verses here that just don't make sense unless we have an embodied approach to the Christian life that combines, yes, the spiritual with the physical. James 2, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. That's the challenge. How are you going to show me that you have faith if you don't work it out in life? And then James says, I'll show you my faith by my works, right? By my embodied, incarnate action in the world, you will be able to discern that I'm someone who believes in Jesus. But if you separate those things, then there's no way to prove the faith. It's because we're meant to live an integrated life, spirit and body. Or what we read in Matthew 25 in the prayer of confession, verses 35 and 36. You remember what the litmus test the Lord used when he was uh, dividing the sheep and the goats and he talked about the difference between those groups? You remember what the test was? He says, for I was hungry and you what? Gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You'll do none of those things. I'll do none of those things if we don't value the body. If we don't have a prominent place for an incarnated way of living the Christian life. So so by this incarnated way, what I mean to say is this, that both the spirit and the body are holy. They're both holy. They both have their place. And and we are beings made up of both things, body and spirit. And to sort of have a life that has integrity, to have a a faith and a witness that has integrity, well, we, we have to have this incarnated sense of presence with others and of service to others. Here's the thing. If we don't show up in an incarnational way, we won't show up in a merciful way because we'll be disregarding the physical. We'll be looking right past need and hurt and fail to see that we know a God who comes near to that with mercy. So incarnational living is embodied living. Incarnational living takes our physical realities seriously. It it does not force us to make a false choice between the spiritual and the physical. It makes both of those things holy simultaneously. We are meant to be spiritually present in a physical way. And we are meant to be physically present with spiritual purpose. Those things go together. And in all of that, we're meant to be attentive. And so let me end this way by giving you three thoughts for developing. I just mean thoughts. I don't mean whole points and paragraphs. Three quick thoughts, Peter, <laughs> on how to cultivate this incarnational living or what, it, what, it, what I think it, if you want a recipe, what I think it might contain. Number one, three words all start with A, abide among assist. Abide among assist. Abide among assists. Number one, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ and his word. If we're going to incarnate spiritual realities and spiritual truths, we can't do that sort of disconnected from the vine. We have to abide in the Lord and his word. Number two, among. We have to live among people. We have to live among people. We have to stop going into our garages driving from one garage to our work garage and then 
up the elevator into our office and sitting at our desk all day and then repeating the pattern in reverse coming home. Park outside, at least walk into the house, wave at your neighbor, right? Invite them over. Go see if they need help with anything. Let them help you because we're not the savior, right? We need mercy too, right? But to live among the people wherever you live. So if you live in PG County or Alexandria or Arlington, or you live here in one of the neighborhoods in DC, wherever we live, we are sent there and we are meant to be incarnate representations of the gospel there, of Christ there. And that's going to require, just like Jesus, we walk among people and talk to people and engage people. Sometimes you read the gospels and you think, man, it seems like Jesus is always you know, with around crowds, crowds are following. He's always talking to people and engaging people, et cetera, et cetera. It's because Jesus didn't have a car. He had no Tesla. You know, he was walking everywhere. And he was always among people. Except when the introvert Jesus decided, I need to get away from all these people. I'm going out here by myself with the Father. All right, shout out to the introverts, right? So, But otherwise, he's walking among the people. And in that ordinary action of walking, he comes into contact and lives among. Last one, assist. Serve the people. If we're going to be incarnational, we're going to be agents of mercy, we're going to be bringing relief to others or receiving relief, we should serve with the people that we live with. Right? And I I will use that language intentionally, serve with. So it's not that we have the answers and the resources, and so we come because we've got a kind of Messiah complex, and we're going to fix everything about other people's lives. Actually, we need to be rescued ourselves. We need to be rescued from a savior complex. We need to be rescued from self-sufficiency. We need to be rescued from comfort, many of us. And that's going to require that we, we be with people who, even though materially, some of us might be better off than those folks, spiritually. They have much to teach us. And materially, they have much to teach us. Because some of us have been so comfortable so long, we don't know how to do without. Right? We hate the thought of doing without. And so we we need our neighbors as much as our neighbors need us. Right? And so to be with the neighbors, serving alongside the neighbors, not acting like we have the answers, but receiving some answers and, and, and walking together in that way. If we're going to be incarnational, let us abide in Christ. Let us live among the people that we're called and sent to to love. And let us assist. Let us come alongside and partner together in all that God calls us to do. That's the posture we need if we're going to be successful at showing mercy and receiving mercy in our neighborhood. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being merciful. We thank you for proving your mercy in the cross of your son. And we thank you, Lord, for being unlimited in mercy so that even after we have come to faith in Christ, we may continue to come to him in our time of need and receive mercy. 
And so we pray, oh Lord, give us this incarnational posture that we might be present in the community, embodied and attentive to the things that are, are here, both physical and spiritual, and bearing witness, oh Lord, demonstrating our faith even by the works we do in faith in your name. Help us to be that kind of church. Help us to be that kind of Christian. Help us to walk this way, O oh Lord, so that you are glorified, so that the mission of this church goes forward with power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.